in terms of questions, often science and God are seen as incompatible. Um, but our next speaker is going to speak on this subject. So can you invite Nathan? Oh, I'm going to invite Nathan. You give him a hand as he comes up. Now, today you're speaking on has science buried God? Mm. It's a yes, no answer. So yes or no. And then that's the end of the segment. Yeah. It thinks, it thinks yes, but there's a surprise. What happens three days later? Oh, okay. Well, wait and hear. Take it away. All right. Well, again, let me just welcome you. And it is fantastic. It's so great to see uh, your face, especially if you are here just for the first time with us during this week. It's been just a blast. And we've been so fortunate with the weather and being in here. And, um, yeah, I'm just really glad that you're here. Um, I was talking about my son, and I'll make reference to that trampoline place in a moment as well because it relates to this topic. But he came home during the week. And do you guys know what this is? It's a Zupa Dupa. And he said to me, Dad, do you know that it would take 10,000 Zupa Dupa ice blocks to power a rocket to the moon and back? <laughs> and I was like, what? Now, we're all open-minded, reasonable people here. And I guess this is what you might call a truth claim that my son has just made. He's declaring a true fact. It's not an opinion. It's not an attitude. It's not a feeling. But it's a truth claim that 10,000 of these will get you to the moon and back. So what's the right response when someone makes a claim like this? Because for a lot of people, when you're talking about science and God, it's almost in that kind of category. How do you even answer that question? So I said to him, son, where did that come from? How did you even think that that's a thing? And he said, oh, dad, it's on the internet. And I thought, oh, it must be true then, on the internet. But the point is, science, on the one hand, makes truth claims. Claims regarding what is true and what is fact. But Christianity and the Bible also is making a whole bunch of truth claims. Fact. It's not at its heart, in a sense, about um, some subjective feeling. It's not about how I feel It's not about my emotions and finding my inner self. All those things are wonderful and good, but at its heart, that's not what Christianity is about. It's about this fact claim that there is a God. But on the one hand, we have science and the fact claims that it makes. And on the other hand, we have Christianity and the Bible that speaks about God and about the fact claims claims around God. So how do we understand this relationship? between science on the one hand and God on the other. And so today's topic is, has science buried God? Because the common answer to this question of science and God, how it's commonly perceived or understood in the popular mind, is that it has buried God. That's what science has done. Just think for a, number of, just think for a second, what are a number of things that just don't belong together? Water and oil, beer and ice cream at the same time. I've tried that. It didn't work really well. Um, PCs and Macs, Coke and Pepsi, they're not meant to go together. And science and God is not meant to go together. Certain things just don't mix and they ought not mix is the idea. 
And this science and God falls often into this sort of category, particularly in our modern mind. So let me just share with you, I did some uh, Google searching and if you can see that, here's a popular idea that I think encapsulates the view when it comes to the relationship between science and religion. It's a popular idea that there's, there's, it's conflict, it's verses. There's God and then there's science and they're opposed to one another. They're in conflict with one another. On the one hand, you've got Bounce and Benny Franklin. He's the inventor of bifocals and also the lightning rod. And his verses in the other corner with his punching gloves on, jabbing Jesus Christ. And in there, they are in the world's heavyweight championship fight, the greatest fight in history. They're rumbling in the jungle. To the outside observer who is watching on from the sidelines, and you might be one of those observers, you're sitting and you're watching this boxing ring take place. It can seem at first that the Bible is very unscientific. It's anti-reason, according to the skeptics. And if you've ever even begun to read the Bible, especially as an adult, because many of us have kind of dabbled in this stuff as kids, even if you've dabbled as a kid, then you'll know that the Bible speaks about things like miracles, speaks about things like angels. It speaks about a transcendent, interventionist, supernatural God and makes claims that there are people who have raised from the dead. So how can the God of the Bible and this science, on the other hand, how can they ever mix? So very quickly, what I want to do is just explain to you what science is or what I've understood science to be. Science is based on observation and evidence. It's the domain of logic and reason. It's about reasoning. It's about the hard facts. I'm not interested in feelings. I'm not interested in theory. I want to know the truth and I want to know the fact. It's about evidence, therefore. It's about proof is at the core of the scientific investigation. Scientists also speak about the scientific method which is made up apparently of three key aspects for science to occur. Repeatability, testability, and predictability. So the scientists will say that for science to be happening, it needs to be able to be repeatable. Whatever it is that we're talking about in the universe, it needs to be something able to be repeated. So if you light a match and you put a fire on a piece of paper, it should happen again, and then it should happen again. So it's repeatability. It's also testability. You should be able to test something. If we think something, we want to be able to test that that's true or false. So we need to test in order to get to science. The third step in scientific method is predictability. Because it's reliable, because it's repeatable, because it's testable, we are able to actually then be able to predict what will take place because of science future predictions of what's going to happen the same as this time. So that's why we can have someone like Stricko, the mad scientist, do what he does because we can predict, hopefully, (laughs) that that brick doesn't fly off and hit someone in the head. That's science and we love it. Science, though, also uh, plays a part in the history of science. Where did science come from as we're wrestling with this debate this morning? The rise of science in history gave rise to the associated thought, which we call naturalism. You might think of a materialism. 
This is the idea that only the material world exists. It's only, the only thing that exists is what you can see, what you can touch, what you can measure, what you can feel. The, that's the only existence there is. There is only the natural. There is no supernatural. That's especially in contrast, on the other hand, to, I guess, belief or religion or superstition. There are those things that we can't see, we can't register with our senses, so we can't measure them. And therefore, many people will say again that these two things are in conflict. But let me just say, not all scientists are necessarily naturalists. So Stricko, he's a scientist, but he wouldn't say he's a naturalist. He would say, yes, he's totally on board with science, but he's also not a naturalist because he thinks there is more to the universe than just what can be measured and what can be seen with our eyes. One of the most famous sort of sceptics of all, particularly in our day and age, is this man called Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, and in it, he said many things about this question of God. Can, can we even speak of a God? Does God exist? He says you cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and still hold religious belief. It's one or the other. You can't have them both, according to Dawkins. Now, he's made this idea pretty popular and pretty mainstream in our kind of generation. But just to encourage you, it's not a new idea. It was around the time that Jesus existed. There were those who were saying the same thing then. And even throughout history, there's been many people who have spoken about this idea. So A.D. White, in 1896, he wrote a book where he wrote, Conflict between the two epochs in the evolution of human thought. The theological, that is God on the one hand, and the scientific on the other. John Draper in the history of the conflict between religion and science in 1874, even earlier, he wrote, science and religion is to be understood as the history of two contending powers. And this is a little bit about how people think that fight is going. On the one hand, you have science, who's the big sumo wrestler. And on the other hand, you have God or religion, or as they've put in this picture, superstition. Christianity and God and religion, in this sense, it's portrayed as superstitious. It's portrayed as wimpy, tiny, insignificant, the significance of it. It's irrelevant. And so the notion of God, according to some, for some people, they want to say that God falls into this category of superstition alongside um, magic, Santa Claus, fairy tales. In this hand, in one sense, the accusation is um, this is... Humanity's historical past, if you like, in the dark ages, when we couldn't explain stuff. We thought the earth was at the centre of the universe for a time. And it's been proven that the world's not flat, but it's actually an orb. And that orb is floating in outer space. But it's not just floating in outer space, it's actually revolving around a sun, which is in a universe. I think I'm so far, I'm okay, aren't I, scientists? But then that universe isn't just one universe. There's many, many galaxies that make up this entire universe. And so the thinking goes that this this thinking about God and religion and the Bible, it's anachronistic. It just belongs in another time and another place. On the other hand, we have science 
So it's big and it's dominant and it's strong. And the scientific revolution is really where this began in its recent sort of conception. It's largely understood to have really sort of taken off in the 16th century. So we come across some scientists like Francis Bacon. He introduced inductive scientific method. This gave birth to what's called empiricism. That's the idea that we can measure. And as long as we can start measuring things, we can do tests, we can quantify something, therefore away we go. We're able to extract general theories. We can create hypothesis. We can test hypothesis so we can measure. But this idea of empiricism led then to what historians call Western Enlightenment. So even in the term there, the the idea of light, that suddenly we became knowledgeable. With science, we started to discover things. We started to know things. And connected to the Enlightenment was another term called rationalism. This is the idea that we depend on rational thinking. We're going to use our brains to figure stuff out. We don't need to rest upon tradition, whether that be our parents and just what they tell us or whether it's organised religion. We don't need to listen to them anymore. We're going to use our reason and our brain to figure stuff out. That's rationalism. So we... As we track forward, we begin to discover, humanity discovers things like gravity, things like atoms, things like germs, things like electrons. And these are the things that once upon a time we could only explain using superstition. And so perhaps we kind of think, oh, well, we we can't explain that thing, but now we can. And so the idea is science is just kind of keeps on pushing God off the stage or out of the ring. Immanuel Kant, another philosopher and scientist, he's famously said these words, dare to reason, dare to be free. Because of science, we're told, we can discover new things. We can invent new things. And so science is great. We've invented all sorts of awesome things, like the microwave oven, so I can have a hamburger in 30 seconds. We've got mobile phones, so we can talk to each other around the world. It's amazing. We've got medicines that will now fix people so they don't die. So our life expectancy, once it was like 40, now our life expectancy, thanks to science and this method, we now live to like 80 or 90, and it's still going up, I think, but some more scientists can tell me more about that. We need more science, not less science. And just to encourage you, We agree. We're not against this idea of science. But the common mind is that the two are in conflict. But really, really? Is that the only way that we can understand these two things and how they relate to one another? I'm going to say a few words, and the short answer is not the only way that we can understand science and God. The first thing I'd like to say is research has been done. So you notice I'm starting with the science. Some scientific investigation has taken place. Over time, two famous studies, one in 1916, one in 1997, a survey of many high-level scientists were asked if they can believe in God and if they can hold on to their scientific reasoning and thought simultaneously integrated together at the same time. 
the result of that scientific study shows us both times the results were remarkably similar. 40% of the scientists said, I've got no problem. I can be believing God. I can believe in, I can trust, because it's a belief, is a trust. I trust in science. I trust in God. Those two things, not a problem for me. 40%. The other 40% said, yes, it is a problem for me. I can't reconcile those two things. 20% agnostic. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. Even though I'm a university professor in some university, I'm wrestling with this too. Twice that study took place, both times similar results. Are they really in conflict? I would love if just out of today, we had Jake Strickling here. One of the big goals of today, I hope, if nothing else you get out of today, is you'll see that we Christians, we're not afraid of science. We're not afraid. We love the truth. We love knowledge. We love education. We're all about that stuff. Let me quickly give you one or two arguments that shows, again, the common conception is Christians and the Bible are anti-reason. They're anti-logic, anti-science. But in the history of scientific thought, that stuff that I was talking to you before, where did that come out of? How did that happen in human history? All that reasoning and enlightenment and education, it happened, the historians tell us, because there was an explosion in terms of literacy. Suddenly, a whole bunch of people in the world went from they can't read to now we can start to read for ourselves. Who was responsible for that? The answer is the church. This is an oversimplification, particularly in Western history, but the main answer is because Christians love God, love the Bible. So because we've got this thing called the Bible, we want to read it. And we do read it. We love it because we think it's the source to life, the source to God. So we love it and we want other people to find out this amazing love as well. But the problem is the world couldn't read. And so Christians took it upon themselves to start teaching people to read. Literacy, a large part to do with the church in history. We're not afraid of the truth. We love it. Two other key historical pieces of this argument. The word university. What does that word even mean? Does anyone want to have a crack? One truth. truth. The word uni, unicycle, a one-wheeled bike. Uni is one, versate, truth, or search for truth. Universities, where did they come from historically? Who started them? Christians made universities because they're searching for one truth. So as they were searching for the one truth, they said to all the other rest of the world, come and search for this one truth with us. Come to university. And of course, so lots of the university, Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, all these universities were founded by Christians out of this same conviction. We love science. We love the truth and we're not afraid of the truth. That's one thing I'd love for you to get across today. And of course, for those of us who have met our Lord Jesus Christ, he says that the truth shall set you free. So the person that we worship and we think is God's son He says to us, the truth shall set you free. So we are all about the truth as we come to being a Christian. So I'm going to press in a little bit further. But before we do that, really, I've got to deal with this question is what is faith? What does it mean to trust? 
before we get to how we understand these two things together, because it's about trusting truth claims, we need to have a quick talk. To have faith is to believe that something is true as opposed to false, as opposed to false yeah? True or false? Today is Friday. Put up your hand if today is Friday. It's true. That's a truth claim. True or false? I'm in the Central Coast right now. True. True or false? Canberra is the capital of Australia. True. True or false? Water at sea level boils at 100 degrees. Is that true or false? Put your hand up if you think it's true. If you're at sea level, does water boil at 100 degrees Celsius? Yes. If you think yes, put your hand up. Let's see if you think this. This is a bit of science. At 100 degrees water, give it all things being equal, sea level, we're told. Now, keep your hand up, though. So that's quite a lot of hands. And you're right, by the way, so I'm not going to make a fool of you. You're correct. But keep up your hand if you've actually ever performed a scientific test to test whether that's true. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So it's a few of you, but many of us, we don't do the test every time, do we? But we've been told by our science teachers at school, here's another true or false. My wife, how's this one going to go? True or false, my wife is a terrible cook. Now, true or false, that's an example of what we call a subjective opinion, not an objective truth statement, yeah? So I could say, my wife's a great cook, and I do, I say that. My son, well, it changes from person to person, but an objective truth is true whether you like it or not. So whether you think it's true or not, it doesn't change the fact that it's true. That's the difference between objective truth and subjective. Again, a lot of people think that God and Christianity falls into this category of subjective truth, but it doesn't. It speaks of a historical reality and a truth. Philosophers distinguish between blind faith and reasonable faith. For example, let's say I said to you, I believe it's raining in Melbourne right now. Scientific method would you say, well, how do you know that it's raining in Melbourne right now? And I say to you, well, my shoulder's a bit sore. And whenever my shoulder's sore, I know it's raining in Melbourne. You'd say you are superstitious. A lot of people think that's the category of God. But if I said to you, no, no, I know it's raining in Melbourne because I've got a webcam set up and I've got a brother in Melbourne who just spoke to me on the phone and he told me that it was raining then you would think, okay, that's not superstitious, blind faith, that's reasonable. And here's the question about the Christian faith and God's existence. Is it blind faith that we're talking about or is it a reasonable faith? And by reasonable, scientists and philosophers will use the term an explanation of best fit. Is the claim about God from the Bible reasonable or is it about blind faith? My son... He went to the trampoline thing just the other day and he said to me, Dad, there's this amazing thing there. It's called the leap of faith. I went, Whoa, wow, cool. What is it? He said, you climb up this huge wall and you get to the top of it and there's a bar that's dangling off the roof and you've got to kind of launch yourself and grab this bar and if you miss it, you fall, but it's okay because you're connected to a safety harness. 
and then you come down. I was like, that sounds awesome. But it's interesting, they call it the leap of faith. Because what we're talking about with blind faith versus reasonable faith, what some people suggest to you is that Christian faith is this idea that what you're being, what you're being asked to do is put on a blindfold, turn off all the lights so you can't even see, and then just jump and just see what happens. That's how many people perceive Christian faith and God in Christianity. But is that how the Bible speaks of it? Is that how we Christians conceive of it? The answer is no. Let me give you a quick definition. This comes from 1681 from a Christian man who speaks about his faith. And so look, even at the time, this is not just recently. This goes a long way back. Faith is a rational and discursive act of the mind. It's an assent upon the evidence or reason inducing the mind to assent. So you pick up all of those words that we're talking about this morning as we speak about science. It's based on something. It's rational. It's about the mind. And the Bible echoes this same idea about the renewing of the mind. We love the mind. We want to build the mind. It's about evidence. It's about reason. And so the, the Christian faith isn't necess- it's not a, a leap into the darkness. It's actually a leap knowing, in a sense, what the evidence is before us as we put our trust in the claims of the Bible. Put up your hand if you know when World War I ended. When did, put up your hand if you know that it ended in 1918. So keep your hand up if you were there. So you all weren't there, but you all know that it ended in 1918. So that's kind of interesting. It's a historical claim to truth. But what I've just done in that moment is I've raised different types of truth claims. So this is where, as we get to, into this area of science and God, science deliberately limits itself to the physical causes and effects. That's all we're going to talk about, what we can measure, what we can see. But the Christian faith talks about physical causes. It does talk about some physical causes. But also it speaks of what we call personal and purpose and historical causes. Let me try and show you what I mean so that you can kind of, I think, get our head around this. Who or what is responsible for making the Ford motor car? Henry Ford? Or is it the guys on the production line and the machines that make the car? Aren't they responsible for making the car? Yes? Yeah? So maybe Henry Ford, maybe the guys on the production line. Okay, what about beautiful music? Think about Mozart for a moment. Who is responsible for making beautiful music? Is it Mozart who wrote the music? Is it the person playing the music? Is it the strings on the violin that as it vibrates, it makes a beautiful sound? Who's responsible? Isn't it all three kind of working together? Now, again, to illustrate, this looks good to me. Now, have you guys enjoyed the food here this week? It's, I've enjoyed the food here this week. And it's so great because um, a lot of people go into a lot of effort to make this food that comes out all week to feed you guys. And the name of the team is Rachel and her team. So can we quickly put our hand together and just thank Rachel and her team because they've given us lots of that good stuff all week and we love it. But let's apply that question to this question of the cake. Let's look at the cake. Who or what has made this cake? The physical components of the cake are sugar, egg, 
Is there flour in that one? No? See, that's how much I know. But there's strawberries. We could play that game like on um, Guess the Ingredients. All the ingredients go together to make the cake. So in one sense, you go, to make the cake, you need all that ingredients. And that's correct. That's all the physical causes that go together to make the cake. But is that all that's made the cake? If that's all it is, then you kind of missed something pretty significant. Because either it's the ladies and men who've made the cakes this week for us, yet you've missed them, or if it's your mum that made you the cake for your birthday, then you've kind of ignored them. And this is how it connects to the idea that we're talking about when it comes to God and science. God made the universe. He made the cake. He put it together with science. He put it together with gravity. He put it together with all the other laws of the universe because he's an orderly God. And in a way, he he put it together. He makes the cake. And then this is where it gets a little bit logically inconsistent or difficult for the materialist. They say, because I know what goes in the cake, because I can tell you about the laws of physics, because I can tell you about the laws of gravity, because I can tell you about all these laws and science, therefore, no one made the cake. Like, is that right? Is that how it works? What science seeks to do is speak about what is physical, measurable, repeatable, cause and effect of the universe. But what it doesn't do, and it doesn't seek to do this, I think, from what I've understood in the scientists I've talked to, is they don't seek to understand the purpose, personal causes of this universe. Science goes to the what and the how, and sometimes to the why, why things happen, for sure. But they don't go to the ultimate explanation of the universe. But Christianity in the Bible points us to another truth claim, that there is a God who is behind the cake. He's in it, he's over it, he made it, and he put it together just like that because he's a good God and he's an orderly God, not a chaotic God. So just like the ladies who went to all his effort this week to make these cakes, if that, you've got to ask yourself, why would God bother with something rather than nothing? Why is there existence? And we get into the realm of philosophy. Here's the four ways that uh, science and God can relate to one another. There's four approaches. And we've been talking the whole time about this first one, conflict. But let me encourage you that even if you're not a Christian, even if you're a Christian, Christians are working this stuff out. That means we have slight disagreements. We're trying to work out how these two things relate. There's conflict there's dialogue, there's integration, or there's independence. Let me quickly run through what they are. So conflict, only one can survive. If it's science, then God must go. If it's God, then science must go. That's conflict. Independence is they're just two separate things. Just don't even try and bring them together. Because it's when you try and bring them together, that's where it all gets all messy, gets confusing. There's a lot of grief. Just keep them separate. Don't even try and connect the two together. Integration is a bit of a challenging one, but there'll be many scientists even in this room today who feel and approach the relationship this way. There's science or there's God, whichever one you want to start with. But science and God, in a sense, just perfectly overlap. They're integrated. And so some people, some Christians will have no problem, no issues with integration between God and science. Some will say that science and God are in dialogue with one another, And that means on some points we can talk. 
We can discuss certain things, but there are areas where there's no overlap, where science simply can't go. So sometimes there's a scientific experiment. Let's check if prayer works. Let me check if there's a God. God, I'll throw up all my money, and any money that stays up there, you can have that money, and any money that comes back, I'll keep. You can't test it like that. That's not how it works. Science and God, yeah, we can have some dialogue, but actually they're quite separate. So here's a quick representation. And I encourage you to think, how does it relate? How does this work today? Where do you kind of position yourself? And again, just to encourage you, people disagree. Christians disagree, but it's okay. Because what Christians do agree on is a few central key facts that Christians do agree upon. But there's the four sort of approaches, if you like. One particular great book is The Language of God by Francis Collins. He's a scientist. He's as high as it gets in the world of DNA. And he writes a book. There's many great books on science and God that you can even read. You can buy from the bookstore. There's about five of them if you are interested in digging deeper. One of the areas where we get to in this as we understand how this relationship works between God and science, is it starts to press into some of the key things that you wrestle with. Things like evolution. Things like the origin of the cosmos. Things like the origin of life. Things like dinosaurs. They're the things that, as you read those books, you can start to wrestle with those things. There's lots of great books on the subject, but for the sake of time, I can't go into it all. What I do want to talk about is this question. I like Calvin and Hobbes. Does anyone else here like Calvin and Hobbes? So here's Calvin. He's looking at the universe, and he screams out to the universe, I'm significant. And there's no response. And then he says, screamed the dust speck. God and science each have something to say to this question raised by Calvin Hobbes. According to science, there's a big bang. That is a cake. The universe exploded into existence. It's observable, it's measurable, it's scientific. But I'm not saying that that negates the possibility that there could have been a God who lit that fuse that caused the big bang. But the scientists tell us it all began with the big bang. Something came out of nothing, according to the naturalists. Just get that. Something came out of nothing. So I'm mocked because at Christmas time, I believe that Jesus came from a virgin birth. People mock me and go, how can you believe that? That's like a miracle and you're crazy because we all know how it works, right? You know how it works. We know how it works. We're about to have another kid. So we know how it works. And then we're laughed at, mocked. Because we know that you can't have a baby without the right ingredients. And yet that same person mocking me, they want me to believe that the whole universe was birthed from nothing. Do you see? Choose your miracle. Which miracle do you want to go with? A child born of a woman because of God? Or go with there was nothing, nothing. Suddenly there's the universe. In an instant, I think, according to the Big Bang. So... I'm still wrestling with that one. But here's where a naturalistic atheist, if they're being consistent with their worldview, and one that does is Dawkins. We're going to hear from him in just a moment. Let's see what they say to this question of existence and the meaning of it 
and particularly in light of reality. It's lovely to see you looking so fit and obviously pulled through so marvellously from your, your um, operation. But there's, come a, there's going to come a time when we don't pull through. Yeah, and, what about that? Uh, what about that? Um, do we get consolation from science, from Darwin, from what? Well, I guess we do. Uh, a, a dear professor of mine just died just a few days ago, and I've been thinking quite a bit about it. And uh, the idea that he lives for eternity in heaven doesn't give me any consolation at all. The idea that his memory lives on with his children and his friends and his colleagues. And, of course, he has his work, or he had his work. Uh, which which will live on. Not everybody gets that kind of legacy. And I think that for those that we love that, that die young or without that sort of issue, uh, the best consolation is just that they had a chance. They They got to be on this stupendous planet and live for a while and they may have suffered. And I think seeing our suffering in the guise of the, the whole cosmos can make it seem not quite so earth-shatteringly special. Uh, yeah, we suffer. But uh, You're right. It's, it, it is a consolation to have a few books behind one or musical mm. compositions or whatever. Or, I, I suppose, a great family life, and, and, and there, are, there are plenty of things uh, of that sort. I, I'm rather moved by the astounding improbability of my own existence. The, the, when you think about the odds ag against our coming into, into existence, it is a huge privilege to be here. And I sort of feel that you want to say that when people say they're bored, you, well, you, you have no business to be bored. You, 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 you exist. Um, there are gazillions of people who could have existed in your place and many of them would have been a lot better than you. Um, so stop whinging. Uh, and the same thing when, when people bemoan their lot, or indeed bemoan the fact that life is going to come to an end. You're lucky to have had anything at all, is what I feel like, like saying to them. Uh, stop moaning. Exactly. Uh, uh... I find that very interesting, because you kind of hear it straight from their own mouth of what kind of consolation does the naturalistic scientific worldview give. Elsewhere, uh, Dawkins, in one of his books, writes this, DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So I think also there's a pithy summary of this position. But I want to just spend the last kind of two minutes with you now sharing with you what does the Bible and God say in response to Calvin's question, I'm significant. He cries out to the universe and says, I'm significant. But how would you answer that question? Are you significant? Science says you're a fluke. You're just a bunch of chemicals. You're here for a short time and you're gone. If you're lucky, you've written some books. Um, but you're a fluke. That's all you are. Uh, how do you test that claim using, like, yeah, let's talk about, are you significant? At one level, the Bible says you're not. The Bible says God doesn't need you because God is God. God doesn't need you. 
because he's got himself. He can make this whole universe again. He's so powerful. But on the other hand, you are significant. And how do you, how do you even begin to comprehend significance? And I think one of the answers to that question is what is a person willing to give or to demonstrate that significance? So I want to share with you, uh, again, just one sentence from the Bible. We read in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that God demonstrates. That word demonstrate, like he proves, he, he, he shows, he reveals his own love for us. That's God. God demonstrates his love. And so this idea of love, the natural scientist will struggle with this concept of love. Prove to me that there is love. What kind of scientific investigation or experiment can I do that proves love? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What this is saying is, Whilst there was a time in our lives where we were eating that cake and we were just like eating the cake with no thought of the maker, no thought of who, where that cake came from, we were pretty proud and we were pretty happy thinking it's all about us, eating the cake with no thought of the giver. But whilst that was going on, God demonstrates his love in that his son Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And here's what I want to finish with. This is a historical truth claim. It's objective. It's not a subjective feeling thing. History, the Bible, and also other resources as well, other pieces of evidence, speak to this man called Jesus. We're told that Jesus walked this earth. He was born. There's a whole bunch of extra historical evidence that says that he existed. He walked this earth. We're told that he died on the cross in history. And then the remarkable claim that is made in the Bible is also that whilst he was buried, three days later he rose again from the dead, which is an extraordinary claim because at that point you've got to think that's kind of in conflict with science because dead people just don't rise. But it's a historical truth claim. And because it's a historical truth claim, it can be investigated. You can test the hypothesis. You can reason with it. You can study it and analyse it and wrestle with it. And I want to urge you that if you are here amongst us today and you've never done that as an adult, that's what life is all about. And so if you're here and you've been intrigued throughout the week, we would love for you to come to life. The other thing is I haven't gone too far into some of the science stuff like evolution. I've done that because I'm ignorant about the evolution stuff, but also because on the weekend we have a professor coming here on Sunday to speak to us about evolution and God. There's also a Q&A time on Sunday on, at 2.30 up there in the main hall. So if you want to, again, push more into the evolution side of things, we would love for you to come back as well. I'm going to finish by just saying we've loved having you join us this week. And we would, one way we'd like to see uh, this week is we would love for you to continue to join with us, continue to grow in your relationship with us here at EV. But I'm going to pause there. And I don't think we have time for Q&A because I've gone over. Is that right, Amber? No questions. No questions today. But um, for a few reasons, you will get a chance to ask your questions there. Let's give Nathan a round of applause when I get there. Thank you, Nathan. 
So the reason we don't have questions is partly we've run out of time, but also this is just the beginning of this conversation, the interplay between science and God for us at church this weekend. As Nathan said, we want to invite you personally to attend the church services this weekend as we explore this idea of God and evolution. So the church service times are on your table, um, but they're Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, two services and Sunday evening. And the Saturday afternoon and the Sunday morning have EV Kids um, facilities. So your kids will have similar amount of fun as they have this week. Those services are provided for, so you can attend church and they can have fun. So I want to invite you to that. So if you do have questions, particularly from this talk, I'll encourage you to write it down on these response slips and we'll email you back. Questions such as, what type of burger, what quality of burger do you get after 30 seconds in the microwave? Or who's cooking dinner after your dig at Mel? think Mel's here, or deeper questions, write them on there. We also, as Nath mentioned briefly, want to personally invite you to the Life Series so that as a church that's interested in you investigating things that are really important, we provide this service. So you've heard of lots of things from the platform this week, things that have equipped you as parents to raise your children well. Um, really important things, but we see that nothing is more important than investigating where you stand with Jesus. And so because of that, we provide the life course and we do it in two different ways. So there's two life flyers. One has a white background and the other one has a black. The white background is actually a daytime life course and that is run on a Wednesday morning and it has child minding provided. So that if you are... um, uh, yeah, a caregiver, particularly a mum with young kids, you can calm your kids are looked after and you can look into the evidence-based belief in Jesus. So that's the life course. And then a similar course but run in the evening is the black background. So we want to invite you to look into that six-week course. 